Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, and I am reading from the ESV translation. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and, they, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, uh, this morning we come before you and we we thank you for your word to us. Uh, It's your spirit that uses these verses and chapters and books uh, to do your work in us and reveal yourself to us. Lord, this morning would you purify our hearts, uh, both as individuals but then also as a congregation. God, we want to see you. We want to see you working in our homes, in our church, in our city. Um, God, would you draw us into deeper discipleship with you? Uh, make us learners after the way of Jesus. This morning we lift up Kevin to you. Would you have already been working in his study and his writing this past week? Would you be with him this morning in his words today? Uh, God, I pray that as a church we would hear your word and obey it and look more like Jesus than we ever have before. Thank you for everything, and most of all we thank you for Jesus and what he's done for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning once again. Um, I got an email from the Swansons. We brought them up here last week and prayed for them as they were heading to northern Africa to support some of our friends there. They made it, um, as you might expect, with two little kids. Um, the sleep hasn't gone the best so far, so you could, you could pray for that. But I think they're having a good, encouraging trip so far. Um, we're thankful for that. It's been a while since I've been up here. Um, I don't know how many weeks it's been, but it always seems like I'm kind of trying to relearn the the bike so to speak but um it's good to to see you all and to dive into matthew again um back in the day um my kids would would more frequently say yes when i'd suggest that we hit the trail and do some hiking together and one thing i remember back when they were little was this constantly trying to get them to look up and take in the views to to get their eyes off the ground and look around and and be more aware you know, I'd say, stop staring at the ground. Hey, look at that tree. I mean, don't miss that view over there. Um, I'd try, but it was, it was pretty much a lost cause. From my vantage point, at least, they were too much of the time looking down and missing out. Now, at first glance, this passage that Aaron just read um, may not seem too relevant to our lives today. The word there doesn't seem to relate too much to our world, I think, on the, on the surface. You know, we have this question about a religious practice that we don't really understand. There's some word pictures there that, that kind of seem to make things harder, really not easier to comprehend. But in actuality, these verses are supremely applicable to our lives because we too can spend too much time staring at our shoes while we're, we're missing out on the sunset. This is what these disciples of John, it seems, along with the Pharisees, are doing. And doing that, they're turning their eyes away from their joy. This morning, I'm going to walk through Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Uh, we'll spend some time here listening 
to what happens here in this word, I'll take three main points that I think Jesus wants us to hear, and then we'll finish by thinking about what this would look like if we actually pursued it in our world today. Well, we've been walking through Matthew. We've seen how Jesus is the king that our hearts long for and how he brings this kingdom that we so desperately want, even if we don't realize it. We're in a section here in Matthew 9 where we see the authority of our king. We've looked at his authority over sin as he healed the paralytic at the beginning of the chapter. We witnessed his authority over salvation as he welcomed tax collectors and sinners to his table and into the kingdom. And the last verse of that previous section that Aaron looked at ties into what we'll look at today because Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So Jesus is saying that he's even in some way in authority over this system that they've been working their lives around. The king says here, there's something bigger than just keeping all those rules. Well, verse 14 tells us that John the Baptist's disciples walk up to Jesus and ask him about his followers' religious practices. And we see the first aspect of this passage here in Matthew 9, a question and then an explanation about the devotion of kingdom disciples. They say to him, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, according to the Old Testament law, there was really only one fast that was required um, before the people of God, that which took place around the Day of Atonement, that, that massive annual event in Jewish life when the priest made a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The disciples of John, though, likely following along with the Pharisees, the religious teachers of that day, they tried to go above and beyond with some regular weekly fasts to try to show extra hard their sorrow over their sin, to make really clear their desire for God's kingdom to come. Now, it seems like there's maybe a bit of a rivalry going on here, at least coming from the John side. We don't see this in the baptizer himself, but it sure looks like it's the case among his followers. John was an ascetic, going without, suffering for God. They seem to carry on this tradition, while Jesus and his followers seem indulgent, right? So hanging out with tax collectors and sinners to begin with, but even partying with them, It sure doesn't fit with their idea of holiness, right? So they say, hey, Jesus, we're fasting. The Pharisees, our teachers are fasting. Why are your guys not doing this? Why are they feasting? That's the basic question. And then Jesus gives an explanation, really an illustration, as to why they're not. Now, I really enjoy doing weddings. I love performing the ceremony. I like doing the counseling beforehand. I dig all that. I do. Nobody come up and punch me. But to be really honest, sometimes the receptions can kind of wear me out. You know, it takes a while to finish up the photos. When the wedding finally gets there, it's like, wow, it's time for 47 speeches to sit through. Before you know, it seems like it's been six hours. You're famished. Your, your butt kind of hurts. It's, it's time to go to sleep. But imagine if I jumped up and screamed, hey, we don't need to see the bride dance with the second cousin once removed, right? I Hope You Dance by Leanne Womack is not a good song, right? Let's please have the cake already, right? No more terrible speeches. 
And since I, I've got the mic, you know, it's great this couple is so happy, but do they have any idea how hard this marriage thing is going to be? Now, talk about a wet blanket, right? I'd, I'd get some cake probably in the face, probably from the mother of the bride. My attitude would not fit the occasion, right? The attitude would not fit the occasion. Isn't that what Jesus is really saying here? Listen to verse 15. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus says, read the room, fellas. This is a wedding, not a funeral. This is a time for joy, not sorrow. And beyond that, hello, I'm here, the bridegroom. There'll be a time to mourn later. You'll fast for sure then, but the time is not now. There's a lot there, so let me unpack it a bit. First, the whole wedding bridegroom thing. Back in the Old Testament, God calls himself a bridegroom, and the people of Israel, his bride. Several times, but here's how the prophet Isaiah puts it. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. John the Baptist, so their leader, he seems to recognize this. He recognizes Jesus' identity. He calls himself basically the best man in John chapter 3, verse 29. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John gets it. There's no jealousy in him. Standing next to Jesus gives him great joy. The bridegroom has come. Jesus spells that out for his followers here. He says, first of all, I'm God, right? I'm who that, those passages are talking about. I'm the groom who's coming for his people. So he's saying that this, this great love story that was spoiled by the fall into sin was coming to its epic conclusion. And this beginning of this perfect relationship that was always intended between God and his people in loving fellowship, it was coming forever and ever and ever. For that reason, second, it was a, not the right time to fast. John seems to be in prison already at this point. We're, we're not sure why his boys don't understand this. Jesus is telling them here, this is a time for celebration, for joy, not mourning. What they were doing was out of place. It was along the lines of screaming out, get on with it during the ceremony, or blurting out, this won't last a year at the reception, or wearing black clothes, or going around with a frown on your face. Jesus is saying, everything you've been fasting for, longing for, for hundreds and hundreds of years is here, right before your eyes. The kingdom has come. I'm the king. I'm here. I get your question, but guys, you're, you're missing the point completely. Don't miss, though, what else the king says. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. This no doubt made their heads spin even more. They didn't have the categories for the bridegroom, the king, coming and then leaving again, right? They thought the Christ would come back, 
He would kick enemy butt, he would sit on the throne, and it would be happily ever after from there. They, of course, they hadn't grasped the full extent of their sin. They didn't understand what needed to be done to make things right again. And Jesus here is talking about the cross. So after he dies, yes, you'll fast, but even after he's raised, he sends to heaven, and there's this time of separation again. There would again be a time to fast, but the time was not then because the king was standing right there. Now, we know this is the right way to interpret this, I think, is because we see fasting all over the, the early church. We see it throughout the, the pages of the book of Acts. More on this later, but fasting should still be a part of our life today. Here we see a question and an explanation that Jesus gives about the devotion of kingdom disciples. Fasting isn't bad. There'd be a place for it down the road, but it doesn't make sense when you're right in front of the king. Let's now look at the, the second aspect of the passage. We see some pictures and a point about the nature of Christ's kingdom. So Jesus moves from this wedding illustration to two more word pictures. They're images that explain why fasting has changed. They make a, a bigger point about the nature of the kingdom. So here's verse 16 again. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Now I'm not sure how many of you here have ever patched an art article of clothing before. Back in my day, in the glorious 1980s, patching your jeans was the way to go, right? You know, just, just look at some cover art from albums or watch some old MTV clips. That was what you did. But Jesus makes it clear here that you can't take an unshrunk piece of denim and sew it over a hole on worn-in jeans, because if you do, then when the new cut of denim shrinks, it's going to tear both fabrics up. You'll be left with a ruined garment. You'll have an even bigger hole. Maybe you've tried before to put a water bottle in the freezer, right? Or maybe an aluminum can of Coke, right? What happens there? You ruin the bottle, the can. You're left with a pretty colossal mess. As the water, the liquid freezes, it expands, it puts pressure on the container until there's this, this breaking point. That's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Back in that day, wine or water bottles were no joke made out of animals. It's weird, I know, but they did what they had to, I guess. You, you cut off the feet, take off the head, I would assume clean it all thoroughly. You'd, you'd sew most of those openings up, except likely the neck where you could pour your drink from, and you'd be left with something you could carry around and drink out of. Now, as these wineskins aged, they'd become brittle, they'd grow hard, and if you filled one up with wine, that hadn't yet fermented, you'd have this problem. As the wine fermented, the gases build up, you'd have the same problem as the can in the freezer. It would expand, it would split open the wine skin, and the bottle and the beverage would both be ruined. Therefore, Jesus says, new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. And in saying that, Jesus is again making a bigger point about the nature of the kingdom. What's the point? Well, 
I like the way D.A. Carson says most things, but I think his explanation here is really helpful. He says, these illustrations show that the new situation introduced by Jesus could not simply be patched onto old Judaism or poured into the old wineskins of Judaism. New forms would have to accompany the kingdom Jesus was now inaugurating to try to domesticate him and incorporate him into the matrix of established Jewish religion would only succeed in ruining both Judaism and Jesus' teaching. So Jesus, I think, here is saying, my kingdom is something altogether different. Those old garments, those old wineskins, they weren't bad or anything. They were good. They just all pointed to me. They found their fulfillment in me. You can't just keep pursuing the same old practices, or you're going to miss the point, people. So there's the walkthrough, verses 14 and 17. There's this question, there's this explanation about the devotion of disciples, and there's some pictures, a point, about the nature of Christ's kingdom. But I want to bring us to a, a main point, a big idea today. And it's this, his kingdom will shatter our expectations and surprise us with celebration if we'll open our hearts to the possibility. His kingdom will shatter our expectations and surprise us with celebration if we'll open our hearts to the possibility. I just want to walk through that line by line. Now, first, his kingdom shatters our expectations. Now, the people in Jesus' day, they weren't expecting the kind of kingdom Jesus would bring. They weren't waiting for the type of king that he would be either, but both were what they truly needed, and it's the same for us today. They wanted to keep on moving ahead, the same old practices, all the while they were completely missing the point. Those old garments no longer were the right fit. Those old wineskins were no longer up to the job. But when I kicked off um, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, quite some time ago, I made a couple of points that I think are still relevant for us today in this discussion First, the gospel extends far wider than we tend to think or imagine. Wider. So, to sex, to money, to worry, to anger, to how we interact with our neighbor, how we even interact with our enemies. Soren Kierkegaard once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Wider. The gospel also goes deeper than we tend to think or imagine. It, it penetrates far below our external actions, the good ones, the bad ones, and gets to our internal motives. Christ says in Matthew 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Christ is not impressed with our cute little rituals that don't go deep. He's not concerned with outward appearances, but rather with the inner realities of the heart. So Christ Jesus wants every part of us to submit to his reign, and he wants us in the depths of our being. And this leaves us in a difficult place where we realize that our old methods with trying to deal with the problem aren't sufficient. And it seems overwhelming until we realize the point Jesus is making and the only pathway to live in the kingdom he brings, he wants us to see our need and realize that we just can't throw a Band-Aid on this gaping wound and expect it to make a difference. I've been reading this great book by 
this British author named Christopher Watkin. And he makes this case that we all operate by what he calls an N-shaped dynamic. So bear with me, I think this will be helpful. What does he mean? Well, if you look at the letter N, at least the lowercase version, he explains it this way. We offer something to a god or the god, the left hand upward stroke of the N, and the god responds with a blessing, the right hand downward stroke. We make a sacrifice, the god gives us a reward. We expectantly scratch God's back and the God obligingly scratches ours. He goes on. In both its religious and secular versions, the N-shaped dynamic moves from performance to prize. It's the default human setting and the default mode of our society. Achievement brings reward and you do what you must to get what you want. He calls this the way of technique. The kingdom that Jesus brings isn't about getting all these little practices right and somehow impressing the person of God. As Watkins says, there's also a secular version of this where we try to be the best person we can, the most generous, the most socially conscious, the best mom, maybe the best husband, and we seek approval, maybe from God or a God, maybe not, maybe from others, generally from ourselves as we look in the mirror. This isn't the way of the kingdom. It's not what our king came to bring. Those old methods won't work. They never really did. We have a new mentality where we see our deep need, where we're no longer comparing ourselves to others and wondering why they're not doing this or that or doing it better. We realize that we don't begin to measure up ourselves and we turn and gaze at the glory of God. He hands us this new garment this robe of righteousness. It has no holes. It doesn't need patched up. We stand in God's presence as a result. He pours in us this new wine. He gives up his, as a, us of his Holy Spirit, and it makes us feel much better inside than these dumb, futile attempts to perform for him and others. His kingdom shatters our expectations, but the king builds us and them back up to something far more beautiful. Second, his kingdom surprises us with celebration. Isn't that the point that Jesus is making here? You guys should be celebrating. You guys should be partying. Remember how Jesus comes on the scene in the beginning of his ministry. What's the first sign he performs in John 2? He turns water into wine at a wedding feast, right? He gets the party started. He brings the good wine And then he goes around from there making the religious people really, really uncomfortable, doesn't he? Often when people think of our faith, they think of something boring and stale, of lots of standing and kneeling and trying not to sin too much. The kingdom that Jesus brings shatters our expectations because it's all about celebration, The kingdom is here, family. Know our joy isn't perfect now. We're still in a fallen, sinful world, but there's still so much to be grateful for, to be joyful about. But one day our joy will be full, won't it? Revelation 19 talks about a wedding in the future, flying through the sky, coming down to earth, kicking off a celebration that would last forever when his kingdom fully comes. 
Earlier we read from Revelation 5. Here, Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. One thing I've struggled with over the years is just how much money people spend these days on weddings. It's pretty much gone insane in our culture. And I think so much of it springs often from parents trying to show off, prove themselves, to, you know, impress their friends. Um, for that reason, I've encouraged couple after couple to not spend too much on their wedding, to not try to get in that arms race. I've even suggested at times they eliminate the, the meal component, but I remember having a conversation with Bobby one time where he was just rebuking me like crazy about that. If you've been in one of those conversations with him, you know what I mean. He was like, what are you talking about, man? That's the whole point. Like the end, it ends with this feast. How can you take that out? And you know, hey, I'll admit when I'm wrong when I am. It's true. That's what we look forward to. And at that day, God's going to bring out the really good stuff, right? It's going to be awesome. One day there's going to be joy unending. It's going to kick off with that feast. But we don't have to wait until then for the joy. I love the way um, New Testament scholar R.T. France puts it. Every once, once in a while it's cool to hear these really, you know, um, stoic, stiff New Testament scholars that come out with this epic quote that, yeah, I love it. But he, sa- he, he says the explosive exuberance. Like that, that's just, those are two great words there. Alliteration and just depth. The explosive exuberance of the new era must break out of the confines of legalism and asceticism. So it's like, just, just picture like that new wine going into that bottle or whatever and it just can't contain it, it just explodes, right? The explosive exuberance of the new era must break out of the confines of legalism and asceticism. So no more legalism. No more of that in approach, that in-curved approach to life. No more asceticism. We don't use that word a lot, but that's trying to kind of suffer our way to God to try to get him to respond with his, with his favor. Joy shatters that mindset. It blows it away. So Watt can contrast the N-shaped dynamic with what he calls the U-shaped way of life. That's the way of grace, of God's provision for our need. It's not performance leads to reward, but rather blessing leads to response. Instead of rising up to God and trying to get him to come down to us, he initiates. He comes down and he lifts us up by his grace for his glory. That's our response. Hear hear Watkin again. Like the technical attitude, the U-shaped dynamic engenders a disposition to the whole of life. Let us call it the bountiful attitude, or we might even say the attitude of gratitude, a posture towards God, the world, and ourselves that reflects God's bounty and lavishing undeserved grace on us, and also the bountiful overflow of our thanks to him. 
The technical attitude is manipulative. The bountiful attitude is receptive. In the technical attitude, we recruit God or the gods to do our will, the will that was ours before he reached out to the divine. But in the bountiful attitude, God recruits us to do his will. In the technical attitude, the God is an instrument, a means, a technique. But in the bountiful attitude, God is the ultimate end of all our means and all our striving. Now, living in that U-shaped world leads to joy, to again, to that explosive exuberance. But it also leads to freedom, doesn't it? Again, legalism, asceticism are usually thought of as just Christian, overtly religious things, but they're really something that's hardwired into all of us from the fall. We all try to do things or forego things to try to impress God, the universe, whomever, whatever. Our basic posture is is this. I'm a good person, and God, or again, whomever, owes me. We try to build this identity to impress God and others. We usually end up comparing ourselves to others and judging and condemning them, and that's really flowing, if we're honest, out of insecurity and misery that's inside of ourselves. Kind of like what's probably going on in John's disciples here. Imagine if they would have had a Twitter account, right? But embracing this U-shaped approach to life gives freedom where we, ha- we realize we have nothing to prove and no one to impress. My friend Brian Lowe in North Carolina always says that. I love it. We have nothing to prove and no one to impress. We've been given this glorious, gracious identity from above as sons and daughters by faith in Christ. And we realize, as as Tim Keller has famously said, we're far more sinful than we ever, ever realized, but we're far more loved than we ever dared hope. We lose this impulse to condemn those around us. It frees us to love, to share the grace we found in Jesus. His kingdom will shatter our expectations and surprise us with celebration if we'll open our hearts to the possibility. I want to turn to that last clause now. How do we do that? How do we open our hearts to the possibility that our expectations are too low, that kingdom joy is really that amazing? How does this word here that we read really fit with our world? Whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, think about how you might be trying to perform and not rest in his grace. That's really where we all start again in that in-shape dynamic It's where we're all prone to slide toward, back toward over and over again. But how do we live in that U-shaped life? What can we do? I want to give you a couple of things. The first is prayerful reading. If we want to learn about the king and his kingdom and have our perspective stretched deeper and wider, we have to be in his word, reading the Bible, learning about him and his ways. And you might ask, hey, Kevin, so why does... Every third sermon, the application is to read your Bible. Well, I feel like we as professing Christians don't do that that much. We need to. I know you may also roll your eyes as you hear this, but we're constantly taking in messages through media nearly every minute of the day, and almost all of it moves us away from our joy. You know, Amy, I know you got the cat videos, the dog videos, not cat, dog videos, like those make you happy, but that's not gonna fill us, right? All of that 
moves us away from our dependence and his provision, and it, it channels us toward performance, especially on social media. It all pushes us toward that end curve. It, all, it reinforces the kings and kingdoms of this world. It moves us down toward sorrow. Like study after study talks about the impact social media has on self-image, on anxiety, on depression. It's, it's crazy. If you're tracking with us in our summer one read, um, author Pete Scazzaro is soon going to talk about this historic practice called the daily office, where we don't just try to get something from God, but we try to spend time with God. It's, it's a daily rhythm. He argues that it'd be better if it happened more than once a day, where we stop our activity, we center ourselves on him, we silence ourselves before the Lord, and then we hear from him in Scripture. This is God's appointed means for us to absorb his grace and with it joy and freedom. Second, purposeful fasting. I indicated earlier, yeah, that there's still a place for fasting today, but we have to think about how fasting is different now, this side of the cross, than it was in the days of this passage. Now we fast, we look, we look back at what Jesus has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, with joy, right? We ask God as we abstain from food, sometimes other things, but mainly food, to give us more and more of a hunger for him, for a taste of the joy that only can be found in him. Fasting stokes that joy, it deepens our celebration. But here's where I think there's similarity to the, the way it was done back then. There's still this element of longing as we fast here and now today, and that's because the kingdom hasn't fully come, right? We're still looking ahead to a joy that will come in full and it will never end. Right now, there's sin and injustice all around us. There's still this element of mourning. There's still definitely this longing we have for him to return to make all things new, to usher in his kingdom that will never end. So if we want to be more and more gripped by the glory of this kingdom and the joy we have in that kingdom, those two things, prayerful reading, purposeful fasting, are two practices, rhythms, means that God gives us to grow, to stoke our faith. Now, we've already heard, you may remember Jesus talk about fasting in Matthew. This isn't the first time. Back in chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, Jesus calls out the Pharisees for the way that they were doing it, for walking around gloomy all the time, trying to showcase their suffering, try to get a lot of attention, seem really holy. The king starts off that section, though, by making his desire for us, for future fasting clear, he says, and when you fast. So he's saying, you will fast, but when you do, don't perform, don't do it to be seen, do it for his glory, and you'll experience joy. You'll receive your reward, the one we really want, which is him. I don't know if you're a, a fan of Jason Isbell. I like his music a lot. He just came out with a new album, and he's got this song on there called Cast Iron Skillet, which I think is great, where he talks about this, he sings about this rule pushed by many families in the South where you weren't to wash the cast iron skillet for anything, right? 
Well, I saw an interview with him, and he talks about how that rule is just false. It, it, it doesn't help to get it as nasty as possible. It's, it's okay to get it good and clean every once in a while. Um, don't soak it in soapy water, but wash it is good. But his point that he talks about in this interview in the song about how most families will push something like that that's wrong, but they end up getting other bigger principles completely wrong. So he talks about in the song in the second verse about this dad whose daughter ends up meeting and marrying a man who's black and he chooses to never talk to her again. So the message is you can be racist, you can abandon your family, but don't wash that darn cast iron skillet, right? This is what we see in the Pharisees throughout this book as well as John's disciples here in chapter nine. Our Lord says to us, all of us, are natural-born legalists. People you like you and me, he says, lift up your eyes to the hills. See where your help comes from. Rejoice. Don't let little practices keep us from missing the point. Allow them to channel us to the point because there's this wedding feast that's coming. This joy that we can even feel now. This feast, it's coming. It's all paid for by someone else. So stop complaining and start dancing. There's this idea out there that Christianity is kind of a straitjacket. So put this faith on. It'll take away your fun. It'll confine you. It'll make you miserable. But in actuality, it's the exact opposite. As we snap out of this religious rule-keeping mentality that isn't just in the church, as we enter, as we walk in to this achievement-free zone that he offers, it's more like we get a set of wings, not our hands tied behind our backs. It's more like a hang glider, living by grace in the joy and freedom of that U-shaped life. We can soar, we can take in glory, we can soak in joy and truly be free. So, Karis, expand your heart to embrace kingdom joy. Let's pray. Would you do that, Father? Would you please expand our hearts? Allow us to look um, in your creation and your redemption and just see the joy that's before us. Forgive us for a lack of it. Um, forgive us, Lord, for going back to the things of this world and, and just drifting back in this mentality that we can somehow impress you. Move us back to the cross. Move us back to the resurrection. Um, move us back to your Holy Spirit and just the joy that you give. Um, thank you for your word, Lord. Speak to us in our word, Lord. Would you make us a people that are desperate to hear from you, that are um, not satisfied with lesser joys, but want to know and rejoice in you? Um, Lord, make, it, make us people that um, hunger for you, above and beyond anything else. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.